Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode of Financial Crime Matters, I talk with Tom Burgess, Investigations Correspondent for the Financial Times. After a brief word from our sponsor, Refinitiv, Tom and I will talk about his latest book, Kleptopia, How Dirty Money is Conquering the World. I hope you enjoy the podcast and will subscribe to the series either on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Here we go. Introducing the Snapshot Due Diligence Report from Refinitiv. The Snapshot Report delivers essential insights used for understanding customer, business, and third-party relationships both quickly and cost-effectively. Snapshot reports include business information, compliance, media, and reputational checks, all in an easy-to-read format, designed to help you make quicker, better decisions by understanding any associated risk, whether regulatory, financial, or reputational, which could impact your business. Find out more today by visiting Refinitiv.com. It's a real pleasure to be here today with Tom Burgess, who is the Financial Times Investigations Correspondent. Afternoon, Tom. Hi. Nice to be with you. Kleptopia is your new book. What's it about? Why did you write it? Kleptopia has been five years in the making. It's four interwoven stories that are supposed to show us where corruption has become the dominant mode of power. And that kleptocracy, I believe, is forming international alliances, permeating into the rich democracies, to the peril of all the institutions that protect us. That's the book in a nutshell. London is a main player in this story. And how does the kleptocracy out there impact London? The city of London is kind of the aorta of the global financial system, isn't it? So you're interested in the effect on London itself rather than the other way around. I want to hear about how London enables. I want to talk a little bit about the laws and regulations that cover the city, that allow this to happen. Let's start there. The hero of the book is the man I met five years ago, Nigel Wilkins. I met him in a, at an event where I was talking about corruption and we got talking afterwards and he said that he'd been working at a Swiss bank. He'd been working at the London office of a, a now defunct Swiss bank called BSI, an office on Cheapside. It's just around the corner from the Bank of England, close to the London Stock Exchange. Nigel Wilkins was approaching retirement. He was a man from Basingstoke, a little town outside London, very much a kind of outsider in the city. He campaigned for, uh, he's a big union man, campaigned for Labour. Manchester was a city he really loved, a kind of really subversive, um, anti-authoritarian city. Nigel was an economist, incredibly clever. He also had his struggles with depression and shyness, really. But a brilliant man and one with a congenital dislike of uh, authority. So He'd gone from various jobs at various financial institutions as an economist, but then he ended up as a compliance officer at BSI Bank in London in 2006. And he started to suspect that what the private bankers in that office were doing was hiding assets for their clients and providing financial secrecy to cover money flows of dubious origin. Now, every evening, as private bankers do, his colleagues would go off into the city for various entertainments and Nigel would just start to go around the office photocopying the documents they'd left on their desks. And he started to assemble a thousand pages of banking records that he took home to his flat in Kensington. And the story of the book spreads out from there. The secrets that Nigel discovered and we start to see how they weave into some of the great forces of our time, oligarchs, presidents, dictators, organized crime. So Nigel works for this Swiss private bank and just maybe in, in a thumbnail, 
the kinds of things that he's seeing and what countries they touch on? Well, Nigel has a revelation one day in 2007, I think it was, when he's watching Carl Levin, um, the US senator, uh, conducting his his hearings at the Permanent Subcommittee, Senate Subcommittee on Investigations, and he's doing hearings into financial secrecy and tax evasion and the tricks that are used. So front companies with dummy directors controlling Swiss accounts, codes used by bankers to disguise what they're up to, techniques like hold mail instructions so that no paperwork ever goes to a client's house. Nigel was watching one of these hearings and he's starting to realise, well, these are exactly the techniques that are being used right here in the city of London by my colleagues. And he starts to look into some of the clients and sees powerful people from the former Soviet Union, especially, but also from the Middle East. And he starts to suspect that his colleagues are facilitating money laundering, possibly on a very big scale, and certainly participating in a kind of financial secrecy industry that he starts to realize is intimately connected with this flow of with the expansion of corrupt power around the world. So Nigel protests within his own institution, is that correct? Nigel does start to make a fuss, but they're already shutting the London office, Nigel believes, in response to the financial crisis and the scrutiny that that will inevitably bring. Nigel then ends up at the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, but it doesn't quite work that way, does it? Right, yeah, he's repeatedly tried to alert the regulators, saying, look, I've got all this evidence of what I believe to be a crime. And in fact, I'm bound by the law, as Nigel points out. He's bound by the law to declare suspicions of money laundering. And yeah, he ends up at the regulator and one day, in 2015, he realises that BSI, as a corporation, is going to confess to abetting tax evasion in the US by doing precisely the sort of things that Nigel was warning about. By then, Nigel's working at the Financial Conduct Authority, as you say. He goes to his superiors and says, well, actually, look, this bank that's confessing in the US to financial crime, I've got a ton of evidence that exactly this kind of stuff was happening right here in the city of London, right under your, your noses. Um, you know, maybe we can do something about it now, he's hoping. He sends them a little bit of this evidence and he offers to show them more. And their response, it's a sort of extraordinary Kafkaesque exchange. And as with the whole book, I've pieced it together from interviews and from documents and from notebooks and all manner of sources to make this kind of read like a non-fiction novel. And there is this extraordinary scene I was able to recreate of Nigel sort of staggering into what must have felt like Kafka and being told, no, 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 um, we're not going to pursue this dirty money you think you found in the city. We're going to fire you and we're going to march you from the building because we think you violated the confidentiality of the clients you suspected at the Swiss bank. And Nigel is humiliated and essentially banished from the city of London and spends the rest of his days as a sort of outlaw from the financial world. And I guess he's kind of vindicated in your book, but this is sort of the end of him as a result of this. Is that right? Well, he dies, yeah. He dies as a kind of outcast from the world he had tried to improve. This raises a lot of questions about the regulatory regime. It often seems as though, particularly in the UK, it's hard for the NCA to win a case and the Serious Fraud Office. And then we see this at the FCA. What's going on? Why is that? Is it that the FCA was bound by the rules and that they're so hamstrung? I think there are different examples of the different agencies, but my impression of the of financial regulators, so the Financial Services Authority and then the Financial Conduct Authority, the fundamental problem with them is that the agencies are funded by the financial sector. He who pays the piper, how does that go? He who pays the piper calls the tune. 
That was Nigel's point. On several points while he worked at the FCA, he tried to challenge the status quo. He tried to raise questions about the origins of money that flow into hedge funds and the inability of the financial regulator to really scrutinise hedge funds, which are you know, ostensibly operating from London, but really based in the Cayman Islands. And you know, for a while, Nigel was encouraged and tolerated, at least, but then in some ways encouraged. He was made employee of the month for challenging the status quo. But ultimately, as an organisation, the leadership sees itself as servants of the industry, not servants of society at large, ensuring that their interests are upheld, which is what a regulator should do, but it's fundamentally misconstructed to do that. And you talk about some of the law firms that are protecting kleptocrats and also the private intelligence groups that they hire. What would you say, how do you characterize that whole strata of professionals, should we use the word, that have come about to enable money laundering and protect the wealthy? I'd say it's quite simple. In, in one way, it's a whole class of people who we would previously have thought of having a duty to states primarily, of having a duty to government agencies, so spies and lawyers, in that lawyers obviously have, and have always had, a duty to the court, at least as strong as their duty to any client civil or criminal. We could say the same thing too about the likes of Tony Blair, you know, someone who lives a life in politics and has now monetized that influence. And all around us, we see this happening, which is essentially an extension of the spirit of kleptocracy. It's using public trust, public and influence over public institutions for private benefit. Now, Blair is one sort of terrifying example of what's happened. And in the book, I write about how a horrendous massacre happened in a, in a town that I went and covered, Jan Ozen in Kazakhstan. And how Blair helped to kind of spin that for the Kazakh dictator. But then you mentioned spies as well, that the private intelligence industry is completely fascinating, a lot of it based out of London. People who have served at high levels within signals intelligence and human intelligence agencies in the West, but in the CIA, in the MI6, in the French intelligence agencies, in Mossad, and so on, who retire and offer their services to paying clients. Now, what's so fascinating about them in these kleptocratic power struggles that I write about in the book is that you can see what the kleptocrats are fighting is a war for information control. So for a war for the narrative that their money and their power is legitimate. I mean that both for the kind of enablers, as we call them, and the kleptocrats themselves, although really that distinction, I think, is a mistake sometimes. I mean, we're really just talking about alliances of kleptocrats, in which I would include the enablers, not as some sort of outside category. Well, it's very interesting. I, I was going to say, you know, that you talk about uh, these former Western intelligence professionals that go into these private firms and they are hired sometimes to do the work of the oligarchs who also sometimes have backgrounds themselves or have lots of connections to the Russian intelligence and uh, the other services. And I guess that goes to the globalization comment that you made. But also look at the extent to which money from kleptocracies is permeating democratic politics. I mean, look at Boris Johnson. He and his party, the Conservative Party in the UK, some of their most influential donors are people with long connections to the highest levels of power in Russia, which is the world's preeminent kleptocracy at the moment. These are personal donors to Johnson, people who throw big parties for him, people who donate to the his political party. Now, imagine that was the other way around. Imagine if Vladimir Putin's closest donors to his political cause and his political party were Brits, some of whom had well-established connections to MI6 or used to be MI6 officers. Clearly, the Kremlin would see that situation as completely intolerable. But for some reason in the UK, we seem to have this state of mind that says that 
in the spirit of kind of open markets, money must be allowed to do whatever it wants. You see this thread in American politics too. But that seems to me as utterly extraordinary that you would allow kleptocracy, you would knowingly allow people with connections to the top of kleptocracies to penetrate your democracy in that way. Well, I think that's an interesting point you make, Tom. And you mentioned Kazakhstan and the fallout where uh, it results in death and destruction there. What's the cost to London? I mean, I think it also happens in Vancouver and in New York in terms of the damage done. You've, you've talked about corruption in politics, potentially. And what's the damage that's also done in terms of real estate and all these other things that are skewed by this corruption? Well, I think this is, um, weirdly, to be optimistic for a second, I think this is where we're going to start to realize and maybe awaken and generate some political will to resist the spread of kleptocracies, that we're going through a process, I think, a bit like what happened with climate change maybe five years ago, where we started to see that something we thought was a kind of arcane scientific technical concept removed from the realities of our daily lives is actually very much bound into the realities of our daily lives when we started to realise in the case of climate change that wildfires and extreme storms and refugees from West Africa and so on would swirl into our lives. I think we're realising something similar with the spread of kleptocracy. I think you mentioned London, but I think this goes worldwide. In London, the murder of Litvinenko, I think, is the, is the real first moment. That's sometimes described as a kind of espionage score settling, but Litvinenko was looking into kleptocracy before he was murdered. You look at the Skripal murder, you look at the murders of journalists within the EU in Malta and elsewhere now who are again investigating corruption. You look at the murders recently of Chechen dissidents, uh, enemies of one of the most barbaric kleptocrats of of all, uh, Ramzan Kadyrov in, in Chechnya. Those murders are happening within Europe. I write in my book about the story of three people who were potentially witnesses in the UK's biggest corruption case, the Serious Fraud Office investigation into ENRC, previously a FTSE 100 incredibly valuable corporation owned, controlled by uh, three Central Asian oligarchs entwined with the Kazakh kleptocrat Nazarbayev. Those three potential witnesses have all turned up dead, two in Missouri, one in South Africa. The oligarchs in the company obviously deny that they have anything to do with the death. In fact, they, they deny that they've done anything wrong and say they're being stitched up by their enemies as some sort of kleptocratic power struggle. But the point is those deaths did happen and people surrounded by the case are scared, witnesses and investigators both. My point is that what we're seeing is creeping ever closer to our ordinary lives and to the lives of people we know who are not political people and who are not Tony Blair, who have not gone seeking out this world. They're finding nonetheless that this world is creeping into their lives. And that's something that's changed radically in recent years. I imagine you followed the story in the UK of the Intelligence Committee of Parliament wrote a report on Russian influence in the UK and the influence of dirty Russian money in the UK and it was suppressed before the election but it did then come out. There was a point that was made about the enablers, there was a point that was made about a great big list of professions that can sometimes help money laundering happen, accountants, company and corporation agents, I can't quote the whole list off the top of my head but the usual suspects, lawyers and so on, people involved in the art world and so on and so forth. And one way of seeing that is to think, oh my goodness, look, there must be huge quantities of, as you say, the, the kind of the money laundering class who are bent on getting their piece of the kleptocratic fortune. But the other way of looking at that, and the way that I've kind of tried to look at as I, as I investigate deaths connected to these cases, is that it's also increasingly, terrifyingly easy for someone just going about a pretty standard life as a solicitor or working in a bank to find themselves, as Nigel did, more or less randomly privy to the secrets of the global kleptocracy. 
and once you start to think that through, it's terrifying how easy any of us could blunder into that world and discover the that it's ultimately underpinned by violence. Well, you seem to have uh, at least introduced a note of optimism in terms of saying that this is now more out in the open and that people are demanding changes. We're just about out of time. Any final thoughts about what should happen going forward? I know it's not your job to prescribe. I am uh, just a reporter and I don't think, I think other people will have far better ideas than me. All I would say briefly is the one policy idea that I think would be really valuable would is a pretty fundamental one, which is just to eliminate front companies. I mean, it sounds simple, but it would be a difficult, complicated thing to do with a great deal of resistance. But we have to go back to challenging the idea that there is any valid reason or at least any valid reason that outweighs the tremendous harm that is done by the ability of people to move money around the world and do business in disguise. You know, money is a social token. It doesn't automatically attract the right to secrecy. And I think that is the debate that needs to be happened far more than tinkering around the edge of edges with beneficial registry ownership, beneficial ownership registries and so on. I think that central question of whether money should be able to act in secret is ultimately where this debate has to go. Well, Tom, I think that's a great place to conclude. I want to thank Tom Burgess, Financial Times Investigations Correspondent, for being here. Tom, thanks. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Tom Burgess, Investigations Correspondent for the Financial Times and the author of Kleptopia. I hope you found what you heard informative and will subscribe on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud so that you'll be able to receive an alert for each one of the new podcasts. Because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.